Hey guys, I want to welcome you to the Mosaic Podcast. I'm Pastor Erwin Raphael McManus, and just wanted to thank you for listening. In case you didn't know, I just released a new book. It's called The Genius of Jesus, The Man Who Changed Everything. And you can order it today at thegeniusofjesus.com. So if you're new, or this is your first time, you're in the middle of a conversation. We've been looking together for the past several weeks at themes around the artisan's soul. We've been working through chapter by chapter, but the core narrative of everything we're talking about is that so many times we misunderstand what it means to be human, that we underestimate the beauty and wonder of what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. And I hope you never forget this phrase for the rest of your life, that bees create hives and ants create colonies, but humans create futures. And that's an uncomfortable thing to say sometimes, especially if you actually are a person of faith, because you have probably been subtly, if not directly, taught that the future is only God's, and that we humans have, have no relationship to the future, and that it's mysterious and unknowable and out of our control and only in God's control. But the strange thing is that when you were a child, you were taught something quite different in a very practical way, because your parents did everything they could to teach you the difference between right and wrong. And they would tell you, eat your vegetables, but they would probably never encourage you to eat or drink kerosene. See, because they understood that the choices you made would affect your future. They understood that if you chose to make decisions that made you healthier and stronger, you would have a future filled with opportunity and freedom. And if you made destructive choices, you would even perhaps eliminate any possible future. See, the strange thing about us human beings is even when we think about the future being ethereal and unknowable and untouchable, we have this inescapable realization the choices we make today affect the future we create for tomorrow. And some of you know people who have made destructive choices in their life and destroyed their future, and hopefully that wasn't you. Some of you also know people who took courageous choices made courageous decisions, stepped into a moment and acted with passion and intention, and they created a future that many of us only can imagine. And this relationship with the future is more dynamic than just the choices we make. Have you ever had someone else's choices affect your future? Have you ever realized that we live in a universe of colliding choices conflicting and battling futures. And sometimes someone wants a future for you that you do not want for yourself. It's called a parent. (laughs) Sometimes you have to struggle and fight for your own future. And sometimes it seems as if a future that you did not want to expect or deserve came out of nowhere. Maybe driving down the street, coming home from work on a Friday night, you've done nothing but work hard. You've done nothing but made good choices. If the future were entirely dependent on the choices you were making, it would be bright and filled with opportunity. But somebody left work mad, had one too many drinks, was driving down the street, careening past the speed limit and texting a friend at the same time. Running a red light, they crash into your car and their choices affect your future forever. See, one of the challenging things about the way we're created as human beings, because we are creative, is that there is this chaotic relationship between 
the life we want to live, the person we want to become, the world we want to create, and all the other choices people are making and all the other variables that are coming at us at the same time. But you, you were imagined by God and given this gift of imagination. You were created by God to be creative and, and in concert and relationship to the God who created you in his image and likeness. You have this amazing ability that you may not be aware of that you can take even devastating moments, even painful moments, even moments that are affected by the choices of other people and watch how God can create a masterpiece even out of the mess. And so we've looked together at the journey of the artisan that we begin in the imagination, that we begin with an idea, a dream, a passion, a vision, an inspiration. And eventually we have to move that invisible realm into a visible reality. And that's where it starts getting dangerous. And last week we looked together at moving from imagination to image. And what I want to focus on for the next few moments is the process of the creative act that leads to craft. Because eventually, if you're going to live the life you were created to live, if you're going to live out the full expression of the artisan you are, you have to take on the hard work of craftsmanship. I wanna to read to you a passage of scripture. Only one tonight. Ephesians chapter four, verse 28. Does anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. It's kind of an unusual verse to launch from as we talk about the process of creating a craft. But you see, when you look at this passage of scripture, what you find this is a journey from becoming a consumer to becoming a creative. When he says, let him who steals, steal no longer, by the way, by itself, it's a really, really great piece of advice. If you're here and you have an issue with stealing, stop stealing. It's a great place to begin. You keep friends longer. You earn trust. But you see, if you've been stealing, it's not simply that you're damaging someone else's space, that you're taking from someone else's property, but you're saying something about yourself that you may not realize you're saying. See, when you choose to steal, you're declaring about yourself that you do not believe that you can create. You steal because you do not create. We consume because we do not believe we can create. So let him who steals, steal no longer. But work, by the way, that's the least romantic phrase you'll ever hear. Get to work. <laughs> but it's some of the best advice you'll ever find. See, let him who steals steal longer and work and do something useful with their hands, in case you don't know what work looks like. So that the end result might be that you would have something to share with a person in need. See, you are being invited to move out of being a consumer to begin to live a life as a creative. And it sounds so wonderful, doesn't it? But have you ever noticed that sometimes what we want to create is a lot harder than what we thought? Did you ever have an idea, you just knew you were gonna execute it and then you tried to execute it and it was just harder than you thought? It took longer than you thought? 
more difficult than you thought, and then in the end you're thinking, what was I thinking? That's why they're, they're, those people who are so prodigious, they're just irritating. Mozart creating masterpieces by the age of five. It's just stupid. Let's just be really honest. That's mildly inspiring, mostly irritating. <laughs> I mean, I love chess. I learned how to play chess at the age of three. Knowing that Bobby Fischer was a grandmaster by the age of 15, it just blows my mind. But he was. The idea that Michael Phelps retired at the age of 27 is so incredibly irritating, I don't know how to put it into words, that he became the best in the world in his chosen field and accomplished everything that could be accomplished, that needed to be accomplished, that had ever been accomplished. And so at 27, he said, I'm done. At five, I was still drooling. At 15, I still hadn't figured out how to talk to a girl. At 27, I wasn't retiring. I was still looking for what I could do with my life. Yeah, I love those people. And then I'm listening to the radio this past week, and I hear about King James. No, LeBron James. And they're talking about LeBron before he was famous. You know, ninth grade. Go, what? He became famous in ninth grade? Of course. That's, that's what we all struggle with in ninth grade. Our overwhelming fame. They're saying, yes, well, something happened when LeBron was in seventh grade before he was famous in ninth grade. Because when he was in seventh grade, he was on a basketball team, and some kid on his team shot a basket, and it clanged off the rim, which, by the way, is supposed to happen when you're in seventh grade. And this kid starts running from the top of the key, leaps in the air, catches the ball in flight, and jams the ball in seventh grade. He dunks a basketball in seventh grade. Most of us will never dunk a basketball in any grade. And the referee blows the whistle and calls a timeout. And the other refs run to him. He goes, well, what was the infraction? We didn't see any kind of foul. He goes, there, there wasn't any infraction. I, I just never seen that before. So I blew the whistle so we could stop and sort of soak it in. So when you see greatness just percolate to the top in a human being, you recognize that this is an unusual expression of being human. And that creates a mythology of greatness. It creates a mythology that, that if you have talent, it's supposed to just happen, right? I mean, if you have like skill, it's just, it's just sort of form. And, and if you spiritualize it and say, well, you know, God's called me. It's supposed to be a get out of jail free card from hard work. I think that's where a lot of people get confused. Well, I have a sense of destiny. I have this calling, I have this mandate, I have all this potential, I have all this talent, but what you, you, you may not realize is that potential only becomes talent through hard work. And talent only becomes greatness through hard work. And eventually the artisan realizes and recognizes that if you're going to create anything that is timeless, if you're going to create anything that, that grows in its value with time, you have to do the hard work. Years ago when we were forming Mosaic, I, I was organizing our community and tribes. It was a lot of fun and we loved creating 
frameworks and ideas and images and metaphors. And so we had our, our developers, which were like working with kids, and we had our connectors that were working with connection, helping new people connect here at Mosaic. And, and, and we had our, our artisans for all the people involved in the performing arts. And then we had our craftsmen. And our craftsmen were the people who did the hard work of creating everything that created the, the template for the artisans. And no one wanted to be a craftsman. They all wanted to be artisans. In fact, the people in church said, I don't want to be called a craftsman. I want to be an artisan. And I realized very, very quickly that whenever you say to someone, oh, you're an artist, they go, thank you. Right? Because when someone calls you an artist, you go, wow, you see me. Right? You, you, you see my creativity, you see my awesomeness. And to say to someone you're an artist is to say that you have this inherent awesomeness that just oozes out of your skin. But to say you're a craftsman is like saying, wow, you, you, you're just good at working hard. Right? That's what a craftsman is. The artist, he just imagines and creates. So romantic. The craftsman calluses, sweat. Cooper was just telling me he wanted to learn how to weld, so he got a job as a welder for two years so he could learn how to weld. Who does that? That's called work. You don't really want to have to work to create, do you? You shouldn't have to work at creating, except that God rested from the work of creating. What will it take for us to realize that that if we're going to craft our lives as a work of art, we have to be committed to the long haul. We have to be committed to the hard work of developing skills and competencies and discipline and character. That you can have moments of greatness, but sustained greatness is the result of a discipline of life. Your talent can erupt on the field, but if you do not have the character to sustain that talent, that talent will burn you down like it lit you up. Let him who steals steal no longer, but work. The artist understands the beauty of hard work. But we live in a culture where fame is actually far more attractive than beauty. I remember when we were on the set of, of Noah, and we had the chance to meet Darren Aronofsky and, and Russell Crowe, and I'm not going to lie, that was really cool. It was cool meeting Russell Crowe, meeting Noah, and, and, to get, right? and, getting, and getting, also meeting Maximus, and you know, meeting almost all of my favorite characters, all wrapped up in the one human being, and it was awesome, and to be honest. And getting to interact with Darren Aronofsky, being inside the genius of the black swan and the fountain. I, 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 I enjoyed that interaction so much, seeing inside of this brilliant mind. But what was extraordinary is when we walked on the set of the ark. It was immense. It was massive. And they had crafted forms of every animal that they were going to put in the ark, all the birds and, and, and the mammals and the reptiles and, and the, the, the detail, the craftsmanship of this ark that was made true to size was astonishing. And even though you'll, you'll never see their names and you'll never see their faces and you'll never know who they were, I guarantee you that Darren nor Russell 
built that ark. There were an endless number of nameless, unknown craftsmen who spent years and years developing their skills to create something that brings awe and inspiration. See, sometimes what we want is we want that part of the process that puts our name in lights. But we don't want the process where we have to put our shoulder to the wheel and work and do something with our hands. I, I think this is a lost art because for most of us, we, we, we find ways of not doing as much with our hands for work. But there's something extraordinary about the extension of who we are. And when, when I was at a, a TED a few weeks ago in Vancouver, they have all these like little different experiences you get to do. And, and, and so they had the, these handwriting analysts there. The kind that work for like the courts, that work for law firms, that help you know who to select for the jury, and and to be able to read into the psychosis of of, um, of a criminal, and and so they they gave me a, a little sheet. And they said just write whatever you want and then sign it, and then we'll read it. And 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 I was asking, well, you know, sh- which handwriting should I use? And I was trying to ask them because I didn't know which one of me would be writing at that time, and I wasn't sure which one of me was gonna be expressed. So I, and they said, just, just write something down. And hey, you, ever, you ever have like several different signatures and several different ways of writing, depending on, on how you feel? No? Okay, okay. And uh, so anyway, not, not me, me either. I have one particular way. And then, so I, I write something down and then I sign it. And then I get in line, and I sit down, and this woman, she's been reading people's signatures for over 30 years as a professional. And, and she kind of spooked me out, to be honest with you. I felt like I was at a, in like there was like a, a psychic or something like that. You know, I was like, wait, there's like voodoo happening here. And because she looked at in my writing, and she said, hmm. And, and she said, people, somebody made you feel very, very small before you're the age of five. Yeah, but everybody is really small before the age of five. And that's, that's sort of like general and generic. And, uh, and I knew what she meant. I said, that's strange because I, I never knew my real father and I met my mom basically when I was five. And, and I felt very abandoned and alone in the world. And she kept looking and then she said, you had a trauma at the, around the age of 12 that has marked you and left a scar on you the rest of your life. So that's kind of strange, because at the age of 12, I was in a psychiatric chair, and I was in a hospital, and then they cut me open, literally with a scar, remaining behind where they opened my body to see if I was sick, but I wasn't sick. It was just my soul that was sick. I'm like, what what part of my handwriting tells you that? (laughs) And and then she said, look here. Whenever you're under stress, you need physical exercise. You're very physical. You have to go play something. Yeah, I go play basketball. To, to relieve my stress or, or beat someone up, but either one, and uh, mostly play basketball now. And then she, she said, but overarching, the overarching theme of what your handwriting tells me is that you live to create. Wow, is that, is that what it says? She goes, yes, it's all over the place. You live to create. She goes, oh, and there's one other thing. I said, what? she goes, what's that? She goes, you want to hide from the world but you have a desperate longing to have great influence in history. And this dilemma haunts you. Woman! 
above my head. You're invading into my soul and your foot is stepping on my heart. So get out. I realized that, that just signing a sheet of paper, just writing one sentence was a, a transference of my soul. That she could actually see who I was, what I longed for, what I struggled with. And that there's, there's a, a craft even to what we write and how we write it. It's an extension of who we are. And if our handwriting says that much about us, what does what we create every day through our lives say about us? And do something with your hands. What are you touching that you are shaping? What lives, what hearts, what minds, what world are you touching and leaving your fingerprints and shaping with your palms? What are you touching because what you have inside of you is shaping everything outside of you? And it's a craft. And, and if you're sloppy with it, you will only create things that you want to discard. It's, it's a challenge, isn't it, to create something beautiful that you imagine? If you could just see inside of my imagination, you would just know how awesome I am in here. But it doesn't translate. It just doesn't work its way out of my head into reality very well. I remember taking art classes in college. So frustrating to be next to someone who can actually paint. Just see it. Yeah, right. You know, I know that's what, the, that's what Da Vinci says, right? It's all about seeing. Well, I am a blind man because when I put on the canvas, it looks like I see everything through milky eyes. <laughs> and I, I'll look at those painters and, and what they're painting, it's translating so beautifully what we're looking at. I go, how do you do that? They go, no, it's easy. Just, just, just put on the canvas what you see. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's easy when it's easy, isn't it? But it's hard when it's hard. I took voice lessons in college because I started traveling and doing festivals and concerts and and writing music and performing, and so I thought I gotta do something with this. So I took voice lessons. I remember my, my, vo my voice teacher, my vo vocal instructor saying to me, I love working with people like you more than the guy that was just in here right before you. I love that. So, really? And I shouldn't have pressed, but I did. My ego demanded more information, and I said, really, why? She goes, well, because he has so much talent but has no passion to do anything with it. You really don't have a lot of talent, but you have so much passion. I should have stopped while I was ahead. But if you could hear my voice the way I hear it in my head, it's so awesome. And when I, I, I see the band up here and they're singing that R&B kind of like smooth, I was like, I, I, I can see myself. I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm dancing. I'm like, awesome. But my body doesn't believe me. It, it doesn't try. Keep going, you, you're supposed to move. And it says, no. We've tried that. It doesn't materialize properly. It looks awkward and uncomfortable, and you don't want to do that to everyone in the room, and you don't know how frustrating it is that I cannot translate my imagination into materialization, into reality. And so I eventually realized there's just a whole lot of things that I can imagine myself being great at, but very few things that I can discipline myself and actually develop some level of real beauty and elegance. You know how hard it is to write a book? 
I mean, it's been six years since I've written the book, and I forgot how absolutely dependent and needy I am of human affirmation. I, I know it's a terrible thing to say. You don't want to say that publicly. Don't act like you're not like that. Yeah. But you see, when I used to write books, I used to go on Amazon every day. What are they, how many stars? Those Amazon stars, they haunt you. And, and I, I've been free from that for six years. I thought I grew up. See, I, last six years I thought, man, I, I'm, I'm above that now. Like, I don't need that anymore because like, I used to be like that, but I, I'm not like that anymore. But now that I have a book out, I'm on Amazon every day. I mean, first thing in the morning. I mean, it's not like the first thing I do, but it's really close to the first thing. And the last thing I do before I go to bed, which is really bad because it really affects your sleep. I check those stars. Oh, I'm telling you, those five stars, they just felt so good. Like, oh, thank you. I mean, I know they're my friends, and, and, and a lot of them, like, you know, a lot of them, like, work for me, so they have to give me five stars, you know, and, and, and so, but I'm, I'm okay, because I'm, I'm okay with insincere five stars, okay, and so, and by the way, if you haven't had an opportunity, you know, and you feel like inclined, and you, you know, and you know in your soul, it's, there are five stars waiting to be given, I just want to encourage you, there's still time, but I can tell you, when I got my first four star, it's like, what, what, what do you mean four stars? And then, you know, they, they try to, like, cover it up by writing something nice about you. Like four, like, four stars should be a compliment to the writer. Like, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't write all these nice things about me, but leave off a star. Because we both know what that means. It's, the, it's that one missing star that really matters. That's what you're really saying. Because what you're really saying is it's not a five. And then I got my first three. I don't even know if I should be saying that. I don't even know if I should be speaking that into the universe. Because I don't want threes to be acceptable. I just want you to know that. And, and I got that first three, and then, the, and then some snide little comment, and going, what, what's, what's the problem? <laughs> so, what would I ever do to you? Like, what, 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 what has to happen for you to be so motivated to go online <laughs> and give me a three? I mean, what did I ever do to you? Don't, you know, it's like, don't, don't work out your mama issues with, with me giving me a three star. You know, it's like, you know, it's weird. I don't even know that guy. I, I mean, I tried to chase him down on the internet, but I couldn't figure it out. And, and some stranger gives me a three and it just cuts me to the core of my soul. I'm left bleeding on amazon.com. Oh man, I got three. And I, I had this thought. That's, that's right. I remember this. That's why you stop. Because you see, it's so much easier to criticize than it is to create. You see, it's not incidental that when Solomon was going to build the temple, he wasn't instructed to be inspired and creative. He was instructed to be strong and courageous. See, the core etymology of the word craft is actually the word for strength. Because if you're going to create, you'd better develop some strength. If you're going to externalize your soul and begin to create something in the world, and if you're going to aspire to be great at something and give the world your greatest contribution, you better find some courage because there's nothing more courageous than creating. Nothing more destructive 
than laying your heart and your soul on the table with your best work and having people say it's not good enough. What I find in life is the people who criticize the most are the ones who create the least because it takes no courage to criticize and so much courage to to create. But critique is different. See, when a person's creating, they can critique with respect because they know how difficult it is to create anything of value, which is a very, very different thing, isn't it? I wonder what happened that stopped you from creating. Was it a failure that damaged your soul too deeply? Or was it a moment where you thought it was your best work and you thought the world would respect it or honor it or value it, and all you found was critique and criticism and condemnation? See, the, the tricky thing about living out your artisan's soul, is that you have to be authentic and vulnerable enough to let the world see you and courageous and strong enough to take all the blows that say you're not enough. Huh. If I waited till I was an equal to Hemingway to write, it would probably be a while before I put another word into print. And don't let me mislead you. I care about every word and the artistry and poetry and beauty of every word it matters to me. And I don't write less than Hemingway because I care less than Hemingway. I'm just working my way through the stars. If I waited until I could speak like MLK Jr. did that day when he said, I have a dream, if I waited till every one of my talks could carry that level of weight and force and power and passion, I think I would just choose to be silent the rest of my life. But the strange thing is that you'll never become a great writer unless you write. You'll never become a great communicator unless you speak. You eventually have to just step out of that space that lets you be safe in the invisible and become visible and let the world see you and decide that what you have to bring to the world is worth the risk and sacrifice you've made. I remember years ago when I was in San Francisco speaking to these Wall Street investors, there was a little after party with amazing sushi and we were sitting together and this multi-billion dollar like hedge fund investment group were there and this professor of economics from Harvard University started talking with me and I, and I said, you know, really all creation is an expression of the human spirit. He goes, I don't even know if I believe in a human spirit. He goes, you want to know what drives all human action? And I said, sure, I want to know. He goes, economics. And of course, all the economists at the table actually disagreed with him and say, no, come on, man. You know, because they knew he was just chiding me. And I said, no, I agree with you. I agree that economics explains all human action if you'll agree that all economics are is an agreement of shared value. Well, that is what economics is. That's right. See, economics is about people deciding the value of things. And so whatever you have, whatever you buy, whatever you purchase, whatever you own, whatever you steal, you're deciding the value of something. And so if... You bottle water, isn't that absurd? 
and try to sell water to people who have water everywhere, you will never be able to sell it because no one is gonna buy bottled water that's exactly the same as the water in the faucet. Isn't that outlandish? But if you went to some far off land where water was so scarce, and there was nothing but desert and sand, and you bottled the water, you could sell the water for so much. Or you could go to elitist germaphobes who are terrified of drinking water if it doesn't come out of a bottle, so that they can pretend it's different than the water they're drinking that isn't in the bottle. And you have an agreement of shared value. So if I have um, a cow, but everybody has cows, so my cow has no value. So I take my cow and I go on a long journey over mountains to a land where people have goats. And they see your cow and you show them how you can get milk from the cow. And, and so they think this cow is extraordinary, so they give you five goats for that cow. And so you leave with five goats, but you leave your cow behind. You cross over the mountains to another prairie, to a land where people only have horses and have never seen goats before. And so they offer you 10 horses for three goats. And so you come with 10 horses and three goats, and you come back to your land that is only cows. And when they see the horses, they're astonished by them. And so you sell three of the horses for 10 cows. Now you have 10 cows and all these horses and all these goats because you found a way to add value to the world. It's the way it used to work, by the way. A cobbler would make shoes. A metal worker would make tools. A farmer would grow the wheat and the corn and they would share and trade and they would agree upon a value of their work. You see, you steal because you do not believe you can create. You consume because you do not believe that you can create. You live in fear that there'll never be enough because you have come to believe that you cannot create, but if you increase your value by learning how to translate your imagination into reality and begin to create, you increase your worth to the world and you begin to make your life a gift to others. Don't underestimate. You can clap. Thank you. Never underestimate the power of what you have to bring. Do you know that kindness is rare in this world? You want to make yourself invaluable, become the kindest person in the world. That's been my mantra this year. I decided I want to be the kindest person in the world. I want to make that my aspiration. I want that to be my economy for life. You want to become rare in the world? Love people. Love is a rare commodity. Lust, it's rampant. Romance, it's everywhere, but love is rare. You want to become rare in this world? Forgive quickly and easily and readily and generously. A forgiving human being is so rare in this world. You want to be rare in this world? Encourage. Inspire. Serve. Be gentle. What you will bring to the table will have such value that you will be treasured for the rest of your life.
There's an economy of being human. And when you begin to craft your life into a work of art, you realize you have more to give than you know. This isn't just about your potential and about your talent. It's about your character and your essence. You know? I love going to see movies. If I'm with my friends from the east side, I love attending films when I go with my friends from the west side. And, but I, 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 I mean, I love great films and bad movies. I love them all, because I love popcorn. Because <laughs> you can go to a movie and just get a lot of popcorn. I'm, I'm, I'm addicted to popcorn. I, that popcorn machine, it's mine. <laughs> it actually is my popcorn machine. Because I, lo I love popcorn, and, and, and I, I have a box of bags of popcorn in my closet. And I refill all the time. And every time I go to World Market, wherever it is, and get my popcorn, they go, are you having a party? I'm like, don't be judgy. <laughs> I'm having a party. And I'll just say, I eat like a bag of popcorn every day, just enjoy my life. When I go to movies, I, 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 I always like look at the package, and I always pretend I'm gonna get the smaller popcorn so that people will not judge me so quickly, right? Go, oh, I think I'll have the small popcorn. No, no, I'll have the medium. And, and, and then they usually like upsize you. They say, well, you know, the large one is, is bottomless. They go, oh, really? I mean, I've only been to like 10,000 movies in my life, but like, oh, wow. And, and there'll always be people with me. And I say, hey, do you guys want some popcorn? They'll always say no because they're liars, because they, they're going to want your popcorn the moment it's sitting there. And, and so I go, no, no you, you guys are going to want some. No, and they, they do their Sour Patch thing and, you know, whatever else is Raisinets. But you know the aroma of the popcorn is going to win the day. And so I get my large, like, you know, bucket of popcorn. And I am sitting there, and, and I usually put the popcorn sort of in the middle, so there's like a physical communication that this popcorn is mine. And... <laughs> It's not really going anywhere. It's not visiting anybody. And what is your hand doing over here? And, uh, and if you go with a bunch of guys, you just put the popcorn between your legs, and that's just it. You never just mess with the popcorn ever again. But, it, 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 but it's, it's this limited, limited resource mentality, because you see, if you think that's all the popcorn you get, because I've made the mistake of getting a small popcorn to be like, you know, less consumptive. And, and 30 minutes in, I'm out. And the only way you can make it through a lot of bad movies is a lot of good popcorn. I'm like, oh man, I'm out. What am I gonna do? I love those bottomless buckets of popcorn. You, you, you can share. When you have that, when it's truly bottomless, right? Then you go, hey, just grab those like boxes for the, for the drinks. Just pouring popcorn in for everybody. I'm so generous when it's bottomless. We usually like, Lay them out right there in front of the guy selling us the popcorn. Like, just give us a, just a dump it out. Okay, refill. We're not even going in yet. And when you know it's bottomless, you're just like, you're dropping it on the floor, just filling it up. You're like throwing it out, you're bathing in popcorn, going, got all the popcorn in the world. Now, what would happen if we began to believe? that if we would stop stealing because we don't believe we can create and start to do the hard work where we do something with our hands, with all of our being, 
that we would have something to share with those who are in need. What would happen if we began to believe that we have untapped and unlimited potential inside of us? That when we entrust our lives to Jesus, he begins to craft in us a work of art. He makes us that unlimited resource of life and love and hope for others. What happened if we would believe that those moments when we pulled away from God, because he was pressing in too tight, because he was carving away at the parts of us that we did not want to let go, that he finally helped us understand that he was cutting away all the darkness and leaving only light, he was taking away all the envy and greed, all the violence and unforgiveness and leaving only love and hope, compassion and kindness. See, I think some of us ran away from God when he began to do his work of a craftsman in us. But God does not see you as a mass. He does not see you to be standardized or cloned or conformed. He sees you uniquely and he will carve away at your soul until the image of who you are supposed to be is all that remains. To look like him in his image and likeness. What would happen if tonight you would say, Jesus, I get it. I'm your work of art. And I'm supposed to be your artist at work. What would happen if we would say to Jesus, make me your masterpiece. Do whatever you have to do. Break the pieces if they've been put together wrong. Change the hues and the textures and the colors inside my soul so you can paint a beautiful world through me. And if we say, hey, Jesus, I'm willing to do the hard work of a craftsman. I'm willing to put in the hours and the discipline, the sweat. I want the calluses not only on my hands, but on my heart. Not that it hardens me, but it gives me strength and courage to create. I had this idea of a, of a neon sign that said, work of art, and then it flashed and it became and said, artist at work. I wish I could translate this image into a reality. But I have no idea how to do that. So I contacted Cooper, and I said, hey, Cooper, I want to create a neon sign that says, work of art, artist at work, and he says, I don't know how to do that, but I think I know a guy. So he called a guy who no longer did that anymore, and he said, I think I know a guy. And so he called that guy, and, and that guy makes neon signs. I guess he blows into them and bends them with fire and turns them into words. And he translated what was in my imagination into something real, and we just received it here because it was finished last night. And I have no idea whether it'll really work or not again. But I want us just to plug it in and to see if this work of craftsmanship tells the story we hope it will tell. Work of art. Artists at work. Isn't that beautiful? I want that to be your story tonight. So I just want you to bow your heads with me just for a moment. Just close your eyes. The band's just going to keep playing for a few moments. If you're here tonight, you'd say, Erwin, tonight's my night. I don't want to mess around. 
I don't want to pull away. I want to trust my life to Jesus Christ who died for me and rose from the dead. I want to give my life to Jesus so that he can make me his work of art. And I want to give my life to him so that I can be an artist at work. If that's you tonight, you finally see that God sees you, he loves you. He was willing to be crucified for you and rose from the dead so that you could be his masterpiece and you're tired of trying to do this on your own. And tonight you'd say, tonight's my night. I want to give my life to Jesus. All I want you to do right now is just hold up your hand right now to me. Say, that's me tonight. That's me tonight. I just want to trust Jesus with my life. That's beautiful. There's quite a few of you. Some others, just raise your hand right now. That's you. Just keep your hands raised. Anyone else want to pray for you real quickly? If your hand's raised, just pray this prayer right now. God, I need you. I need you in my life. I need your love. I need your forgiveness. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. So I turn my life to him right now. Jesus, I belong to you. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your life in me. I will follow you, no turning back. Make me your work of art. Make me an artist at work. This is my prayer, Jesus. If you just prayed that prayer right now, I want you to know that God heard you. That's the beginning of a conversation with him, beginning of a journey with him, the beginning of a life with him. And maybe you're here, you say, you know, Erwin, I think there was a time where me and Jesus, me and God were close, but when God started crafting in me, I pulled away because it got painful and awkward and uncomfortable. And tonight, I want to say, Jesus, I'm back, and I'm all yours, and I just want you to do whatever you need to do in me to make me the man, the woman I'm supposed to be. I just want you to raise your hand right now, if that's you, right now, if that's you. Just raise your hand right now. Okay, just want to pray for you. Thank you, God, for those. I pray right now they would just press close to you. They would feel you press close to them. That tonight, God, would be the beginning of intimacy, of communion with you, that they would trust you as the master artist who sculpts through the pressing of your hands against their souls. May you make them something beautiful. The world might see God through them. This is my prayer, Father, in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for joining us on the Mosaic Podcast. I want to encourage you to take the message you just received and allow it to go deeply into your soul. Let Jesus do the deep work that only he can do. A special thank you to everyone who gives to Mosaic. Your sacrifice makes this podcast possible and creates life change all over the world. You can be a part of spreading this message around the world by going to mosaic.org give. You can also subscribe, rate, and share this podcast with your friends and family. Thanks again for listening. God bless you.